0: Of a congregation. If you would want a lump of dough to rise into a wonderful loaf of bread, you would put a tiny bit of leaven there, and the effects of that leaven would permeate through all the dough, changing the entire substance of that dough. And this was the illustration that the Lord Jesus used where he warned his disciples against the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, which he used to describe false doctrine. For the Sadducees, we could say the theological skeptics of their own day, they deny many plain teachings of the word of God, like the resurrection. They denied the authority of the Bible. Jesus said, you allow a little of that to get into your heart or soul, it will change everything. It will utterly undo your faith. And the Pharisees, those who elevated their own traditions over the word of God, and who claimed that they could attain to a righteousness on judgment day through their own works, those as well are pronounced an abomination by God. And those who would promulgate such things, he says, will ultimately destroy, destroy true religion. These things are not only for the days of the Lord Jesus' ministry, but also for all true followers of Jesus Christ. If we are to be preserved from the attacks of the devil upon the true faith that the Lord Jesus would have us to possess, we must earnestly contend for the truth and the doctrine of the Holy Scripture. It is for this reason that the Reformed Church We have this practice of regularly going through the main doctrines, those things which separate true Christianity from false, those things which must be believed and understood in order that the true religion would be preserved. These are summarized in our confessions and in particular, the Heidelberg Catechism. We've been going through these doctrines, seeking to understand the truths of salvation, how it is we can know ourselves to be Christians, those who will live and die happily through the blessing of salvation. They are those who know their sin and misery by the law of God. They are those who have been delivered from their sins and miseries by the gospel and in this the second part of the Heidelberg Catechism we have been considering all the glorious truths of the gospel the person and work of Christ the nature of that faith which rests upon him for our justification before God and our assurance of his love And we have considered, in particular, the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, looking in great detail for how the Lord has given us these signs and seals of salvation in order to strengthen the faith of believers. And now we come to Lord's Day 31. Here we have, as the Lord Jesus summarizes um, for us in Matthew 16, the doctrine of the keys of the kingdom, so also the Reformed Fathers who wrote the Heidelberg Catechism sought to summarize what the Lord Jesus teaches here, as well as in Matthew, the 18th chapter. I would ask you to turn the back of your Psalters to look at what our Catechism says there before we consider Matthew 16. On page 64 in the back of your psalters, Lord's Day 31. What are the keys of the kingdom of heaven? The preaching of the holy gospel and Christian discipline or excommunication out of the Christian church. By these two, the kingdom of heaven is opened to believers and shut against unbelievers. How is the kingdom of heaven opened and shut by the preaching of the holy gospel? Thus, when according to the command of Christ, it is declared and publicly testified to all and every believer that whenever they receive the promise of the gospel by a true faith, all their sins are really forgiven them of God for the sake of Christ's merits, and, on the contrary, when it is declared and testified to all unbelievers, and such as do not sincerely repent, that they stand exposed to the wrath of God and eternal condemnation, so long as they are unconverted, according to which testimony of the gospel God will judge them both in this and in the life to come. How is the kingdom of heaven shut and opened by Christian discipline? Thus, when according to the command of Christ, those who under the name of Christians maintain doctrines or practices inconsistent therewith and will not, after having been often brotherly admonished, renounce their errors and wicked course of life are complained of to the church or to those who are therein appointed by the church, and if they despise their admonition, are by them forbidden the use of the sacraments, whereby they are excluded from the Christian church and by God himself from the kingdom of Christ, and when they promise and show real amendment, are again received as members of Christ and his church. So we see here that there is a summary of what the Word of God teaches about these keys of the kingdom. I propose that we will study these um, doctrines over a number of Lord's Days, over a number of sermons. But for this morning, I especially want to look at question 83. What are the keys of the kingdom? The Catechism names two, the preaching of the gospel, and Christian discipline. But in particular, I want to speak about it as it is the giving of a spiritual authority unto his church. For these two things, the preaching of the gospel and church discipline, they denote the nature of church authority. And as there is much confusion about this and many opportunities for deception, both in church history as well as today, we give our attention Now to this theme of the keys of the kingdom, the keys of the kingdom. And looking particularly at Matthew 16, verses 13 to 20, but also looking at other passages, we will see these keys given, received, and then look at the application that follows from this. The keys given and received, and then the application that follows First, we see the keys given. Well, children, here was the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's there, and he is praying. We read in verse uh, 13, when Jesus came to the coasts of Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? You compare that with The uh, parallel account in Luke, and you see he was there praying alone when he uh, spoke to his disciples. Coming to the conclusion of that, he asked them this question, Whom do men say that I am? And children, he was not forgetful. He did not forget who he was. He was asking this question in order to test his disciples in order that they would think about the kind of reputation their Lord and Master had. And we notice that where his disciples answer that question, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? There was a lot of confusion. Don't we agree, congregation? There is confusion also today as to the identity of Jesus Christ. Ask the Muslim; he will say, "Well, he was just a good prophet," as indeed many uh, people in that day said. Ask someone who is a skeptic as to the word of God; they will say, "Well, he is just a good teacher, he has many good life lessons." And then Jesus asked this pointed question: "Whom do you say that I am?" The foundational question we must all ask is, who is the Lord Jesus Christ? What will we do with this Jesus? What do we claim about him? What role does he have in our lives? Who is he, as it were, to us? This is what he asks these disciples. And here we see in this declaration, this confession of faith spoken by the lips of one of the disciples, the Apostle Peter. We have here the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ pronounced. We read in verse 16, And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And we need to understand that where we would see this confession, it directs us to all that Christ is and all that He is unto His people as their Savior. Notice He speaks here of the living God, not a God who is distant and far, not a God who is not active, but a God who is living. He is the living God, not a dead idol. Not a distant figure, but one who is near at hand, who is working in history, who is intervening in your life, who speaks to you by his word. He is the living God. And this one, the Lord Jesus Christ, he has spoken as the Son of the living God. However much the Peter may have understood of this, he surely spoke of the divine power of our Lord Jesus, which he identified. That here was one who was of the same nature as the Father, the same divine nature, power, glory, and wisdom. He is the same as to power, and yet distinct as to his person. He is sent from his Father, revealing From eternity, he is the eternal son of God. And this glorious divine person is the Christ. Christ, you see, children, means the anointed one. He's anointed, you see, separated by God, by the outpouring of the spirit, to be a glorious high priest to atone for sins. To be a great prophet, to reveal the will of God for our salvation. To be the eternal king who would rule and reign in the kingdom of salvation. All that a savior must be is included in this word, Christ. And he ascribes these great titles, these great perfections unto Jesus. Thou, Jesus, art the Christ Christ the son of the living God. This wells up within his soul that he would confess Christ in true faith. Here is the evidence of faith in the heart. Not that we deny Jesus with our words and lives, but that we confess him. Not that we are ashamed of him, but that we testify of the one in whom we have believed. And so Peter, he makes this confession of his faith. He identifies this one in whom he has trusted from the heart. And you notice how he is spoken to by the Lord Jesus. Verse 17, And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon bar Jonah, or we could translate son of Jonah. For flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. I wonder, have you ever done something for the Lord, maybe spoken on his behalf by witnessing, or maybe you've been praying in public, and maybe there was just that seed of pride where you say, wow, I really did a good job there. I really spoke well of the Lord. Well, sometimes the Lord Jesus, even as he commends us for for our obedience in testifying and confessing him also needs to cut us down a peg. Peter maybe took a little bit of pride in how he had uh, spoken so well of the Lord. And so he says, remember, Peter, it wasn't flesh and blood. It wasn't because you are the son of Jonah. It wasn't because you came from a particular family line. It wasn't because of anything about you. It wasn't because you're so smart. It wasn't because you're so courageous. It wasn't because you're so innately spiritual. It was my Father, my Father who revealed it unto you. You see, no one, no one confesses Christ truly except that Christ be revealed to them by the Father. We're utterly dependent upon him you see. Anything that we have, by way of grace in our hearts, we've received from the bountiful hand of the Father. Jesus said, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will in no wise cast out. Have you come to Jesus in faith? It's because you were given to the Son by the Father. And so he says this, that you are blessed, Peter. You are among all men truly happy, for you have confessed that which is utterly true, that salvation is to be found in none other, for I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then he says in, here in verse 18, that he is not only this one confessed by Peter, but here is one who is the builder of the church, Verse 18, and I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against him. I'll say more about that in a moment. Let us recognize, however, that here is the work of Christ in building the church the church which is separated from the false doctrines of the Sadducees and the Pharisees, that church which finds their salvation in none other than the Son of the living God, that church which takes up their cross and follows after the Lord in true repentance, this spiritual society of true believers, not contained within this or that building, that, this or that institution, But the body of true believers in Christ Jesus, that is the church which Christ is here building. Matthew Henry says Christ is both the founder and the church's foundation. He draws souls and draws them to himself. To him they are united, and on him they rest and have a constant dependence. How great is this promise of the Lord Jesus? He speaks, as it were, of two great cities. Here we have the city of the church, the kingdom of heaven. Here we have the kingdom of hell. And there is a constant warfare between the two the devil and his minions. All those who are unbelievers and enemies of Christ, they war against the true church. Enemies, whether in governments or whether in false religions or whether in uh, any other kind of power in the world. They are at war with the true religion for the devil is at war with them. And so he speaks of the gates of hell as though streaming out of those gates come all the locusts of the demonic hordes who stream out and seek to afflict and to attack and to assault the gates of the kingdom of heaven. And likewise, you have that spiritual warfare. That spiritual warfare whereby the kingdom of heaven wages war upon the kingdom of hell. And we are storming the gates of hell through our testimony and confession of the Lord Jesus. And what does Jesus say of all this? That the gates of hell will never prevail. Never will the forces of the devil destroy the true church. And never can they withstand the assaults of its spiritual power. The church will endure for all ages, and the church will vanquish all her enemies. Thus, it is founded, you see, the endurance and the victory of the church upon he who builds it, the Lord Jesus himself. So what do we see of this one? He is... Confess to be the Christ, the Son of God. He is the builder of the church, and he is the one who now says here in verse 19, And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So in connection with Christ being so confessed as the Son of God, in connection with his building the church, he speaks of the giving of keys. And the first thing we must recognize is that he, if he is the giver of these keys, it is because he possesses them according to his divine and supernatural right. He possesses these keys which denote the spiritual authority of salvation i want to prove that briefly by looking at a couple passages in revelation if you do want to turn to the last book of the bible you can hear what i'm talking about here in revelation chapter one and verse 17 we read the words of the Apostle John. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell. And of death. Well, who could that be, children? Someone who was dead and is now alive. Who could that be? Well, none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, who rose again on the third day. He is the one who has the keys of hell and death. He is the one who decides and determines what happens to you and me after we die, whether we will enter into the joys of heaven or whether the eternal punishment of hell. Then you go ahead a couple chapters in Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, you know, chapter 2 and 3 are the Lord Jesus speaking to the different churches in Asia Minor. And he speaks to the pastor of the church in Philadelphia As an angel. That's the language of a pastor in the book of Revelation. So in Revelation 3, verse 7, we read, And to the angel of the church of Philadelphia, write these things, saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. It is as it were that there is a door that leads to salvation, eternal life in heaven. And Jesus Christ himself has the key which will open that door. Where he opens... No man can shut it. Where he closes, no man can open. The Lord Jesus has the authority. And that authority, spiritual and saving, is represented by these keys. And surely this should grip you. No matter who you are this day, no matter your spiritual condition, you ought to recognize there is no other hope for salvation but he who possesses the keys. The Christ, the son of the living God, the builder of the church, he is the one who possesses the authority of the keys. But we notice, don't we, that he also gives the keys. He has them in order that he may give them. And he gives that some may receive these keys. So we read in verse 19, And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now, how are we to understand that? Well, first, it may be helpful to briefly refute a false doctrine about this matter, that which is promoted by the Roman Catholic Church. We say, not on the basis of hatred towards Roman Catholics, but upon our love for the truth of the scriptures, that it is a terrible false teaching that the Roman Catholic Church promotes, that this is a warrant for the office of a pope, and that the pope is accounted to be the foundation of the church and the possessor of the keys of heaven. Now, why is it they would argue this? Well, they would point out, well, you notice here, that there is a speaking to Peter. He is the one who spoke, blessed art, who who, uh, said, thou art the Christ. He is the one of whom it was said, blessed art thou. And then he says, Jesus, in verse 18, And I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against him. What is their argument? Well, the argument is, well, this is speaking of Peter as he is a person. He is the foundation of the church. And he, you see, was the first pope. And he, you see, bestowed this power of the keys to all other popes and therefore the keys of the kingdom of heaven belong to the pope that is basically their argument how would we respond to that well first we would say that while the lord jesus is speaking to peter that the roman catholics misunderstand what the lord jesus is saying there where he says thou art peter patros right Rock, that's the name that he gave Peter because he was strong in the faith by the grace of God the Father. And then he says, upon this rock. So he says, I will name you Rock, but it is not upon you, but upon this rock, Petra, a different Greek word. This rock, I will build my church. You see, it was not him as a person, but rather his confession of faith. Faith in the Lord Jesus, that is the foundation of the church. This is in keeping, you see, with the teaching of Scripture elsewhere. In First Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11, For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Not faith in Peter, but faith in the Lord Jesus. That is the foundation of the church. And surely... That is the foundation that's being spoken of. But let us say, for the sake of argument, that the uh, Lord Jesus is speaking to Peter, that there was a special honor which was bestowed unto him through his preaching. You read the book of Acts, indeed, an honor was bestowed him. He was among the first preachers of the gospel. Well, we would then have to prove that he was the bishop of Rome, the first pope, and The simple fact is that there is no evidence of that fact. It is asserted by the Roman Catholics, but it is unproven. The other thing we would say is that there's nothing here, nothing here about the bestowal of the keys of heaven to successors in a unique way, as though it goes from person to person in that mechanical way, as though it belongs to one man who goes to another man and And so forth. That's not the point of the passage, and there's nothing in the passage about that. So, in that way, as well, it goes far beyond the text. But more fundamentally, I would refer you to the sermons that we preached more recently about the plain reality that the Pope of Rome teaches false doctrine, teaches justification by faith alone, teaches the worship of the bread of the Mass, teaches different mediators, other than the only mediator, Jesus Christ. In all these ways, we say that the pope cannot, cannot be this one possessing the keys of the kingdom heaven because he is an apostate and not a true teacher of the gospel. Well, therefore, if we've said negatively it is not the pope. What else when we say about the one who actually does possess the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Well, I would say that we need to understand what the Bible teaches about the nature of the authority of these keys. Elsewhere, the Lord Jesus in Luke chapter 11, verse 52, speaks of keys in terms of teaching authority, specifically the teaching of the law of God. In Luke 11, verse 52, he speaks to the lawyers, which meant those who taught, The law of God in those days. Luke 11, verse 52. Woe unto you, lawyers, for ye have taken away the key of knowledge. Ye entered not in yourselves, and them that were entering in ye hindered. So there you had those who were appointed to teach the law of God. But they, rather than teaching it faithfully, actually hindered people. From attaining unto a true knowledge of the law of God. They refused to enter in and they hindered others also. An abuse of teaching authority. Well here Jesus says I will build my church. The church of the new covenant. Based upon my finished work upon the cross. And here he says I will give these keys in terms of teaching authority. I would note this as well. The whole language of binding and loosing in verse 19. Whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Language here is quite frequently used if you look at the ancient Jewish writings when there would be different teachers of the Scriptures, and they would say, based upon uh, the moral requirements of the Word of God, that this is loosed, that is, that is permissible. And this is bound, that means that is impermissible. If you read, for example, what the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7 and Romans 7 about marriage, where he speaks about binding and loosing as far as the marriage covenant goes, there's a similar principle. But what is ultimately being bound and loosed? Well, it's the conscience, that inner testimony that is answerable to God alone as to what is permissible and impermissible, that which is forbidden, that which is allowed, that which is righteous, and that which is sin. God is the Lord of the conscience, the only Lord of the conscience. And so it is that where we speak of being bound or loosed in conscience, we speak of that which we have liberty to do before the sight of God or that which we have not the liberty to do. Thus, Acts 20, verse 22, the Apostle Paul speaks in this way. And now, behold, I go bound in the spirit, bound in the spirit unto Jerusalem not knowing the things that shall befall me there. He said he was bound. He could not go against his conscience. He knew the Lord's will for his life, so he must do it. So also where we speak of binding and loosing, we are speaking of the spiritual authority to teach the word of God, those truths of righteousness, salvation, and eternal life, such that the conscience may be loosed Or bound, may have the true liberty of the gospel. Or else may be bound under conviction that we are under the curse of God. So this is what is being denoted here. It's the spiritual authority to bind and loose sinners according to their conscience. And this is something that Christ only possesses and only Christ can give. Who is it that is given in? Well, we would say, in the first place, all the apostles. That's why Peter is singled out, not because of his person uniquely possessing these keys, but because all of the apostles, collectively, all of the twelve, have a unique role in spiritual authority within the church of Jesus Christ. Listen to what the Puritan Matthew Poole writes. The sense is, Peter, I will but trust thee and the rest of my apostles with the whole administration of my gospel. You shall lay the foundation of the Christian church and administer all the affairs of it, opening the truths of my gospel to the world and governing those who shall receive the faith of the gospel. If you read the career of the Gospels, the calling of the Gospels in the book of Acts, you see this prominent place that they had in Acts chapter 2 after the great outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost. We read of that new community of faith in Acts 2 verse 41. Then they that gladly received the word were baptized and the same day were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in the breaking of bread and, a pray- and in prayers. There's a sense in which the apostles fulfill this role in the early church, spreading the true doctrine of the gospel that knits the community of faith together. And it's in this way that the book of Revelation describes these 12 foundations on the walls of that great city of Jerusalem, which represents the spiritual church. Revelation 21, verse 14. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and in them the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. However, we would have to say that this is not unique, not unique to the apostles. Not that there's only 12 men who possess these keys, And then none other ever possessed them in the same way. Maybe you remember last week where we spoke about the Great Commission from Matthew 28. Where Jesus says, All power in heaven and earth is given unto me. Go ye therefore and disciple all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Well, think about that for a moment. Did the the disciples, the apostles, actually baptize all nations? Well, they were only one uh, group of men. They lived and they died. They were martyred. Was Jesus with them all the way to the end of the world? Has the end of the world come? Certainly not. So the promise of that commission and the task of that commission, they go not only to the apostles, but also to successors, to those who inherit the same promise, the same responsibility, and the same calling. These who are the ministers of the gospel. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 8, verse 8, we read, Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, speaking of the Lord Jesus, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Verse 11, And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the working of the ministry. For the edifying of the body of Christ. You notice how that word ministry, it encompasses not only those first apostles, but also pastors and teachers. In addition to those extraordinary men, there are also the ordinary calling of all believers. Not uh, all believers, but the ministers of the gospel who minister to all believers, I should say. So it is. Matthew Henry writes, this invests all the apostles and their successors with a ministerial power to guide and govern the church of Christ as it exists in particular congregations or churches according to the rules of the gospel. Yes, there are those who are called to preach the word. They, in a unique way, possess these keys, the spiritual authority to bind and loose consciences by testifying of the gospel of salvation and likewise the elders, the ruling elders of the church they join with them First Timothy chapter 5 verse 17 let the elders that rule be countered worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and in doctrine. So there are those who labor in the word and doctrine, but also the other ruling elders. They as well work for the spiritual good of the church, and they possess the same spiritual authority. Now, I want to now derive some applications from this. First is one that we must get very clear, and that is that the abuse of spiritual authority is different than the use of spiritual authority. Authority. Listen to what Peter, who is the one spoken to in this passage, says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2 and 3. Feed the flock of God, which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither being lords over God's inheritance, but being examples to the flock. The ministers of the gospel are not to be lords, as though they themselves could make their own rules, their own laws, their own traditions, their own ideas, which would bind the conscience, not at all what is taught in the Bible. It's not the case that the minister of the gospel can say anything to you and you have to believe it. It's not the case the minister of the gospel can tell you to do anything and you have to obey it. No, the authority of those who have the keys, whether elders or ministers, is one not of lords, for there is only one Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, but of servants, of stewards, of ambassadors, of those who are slaves unto the will of Christ. This is why our Belgian Confession, Confession, Article 32 Speaks uh, the leaders of the church ought studiously to take care that they do not depart from those things which Christ, our master, hath instituted. And therefore, we reject all human inventions and all lies which man would introduce into the worship of God, thereby to bind and compel the conscience in any manner whatsoever. We not have to say that churches stumbled if they forbade people from attending the worship of the Lord except they were vaccinated? Would we not have to say that churches stumbled if they required that you wear a covering over your face in order to attend the worship of the Lord? Would we not have to say that anything, anything that we would add to the words of Christ is a tradition of man where Something may be within your own liberty to do as a Christian. It may not be required of you by the elders and leaders of the church, except it is found in the word of God. So that in the first place, the use is different than the abuse. We would say this as well, that there is an obligation on all to submit, submit to the spiritual authority of the Christian ministry. What is it that says in Psalm chapter 2? Why do the nations rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, his Christ, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast their cords from us. That is the lawless age in which we live, whether in governments or in society or even in the confessing church. People who would break free of the bonds of the word of God, that which constrains their conscience unto the true gospel and the true law. Make no mistake, those who resist the right administration of the word of God, the faithful handling of the law and the gospel, they resist not man, they resist God. First Thessalonians 4, verse 8, He therefore that despiseth, despiseth not man, but God who hath also given unto us his holy word. Make no mistake, the faithful preaching of the word of God is the word of God, where a minister would unfold for you what the word of God actually says, carefully handling what God has spoken. If you would resist in your conscience, you are on dangerous ground. You resist what God has spoken unto you. Do you resist the calls of the gospel to repent of sin and to believe on Jesus Christ? then you are bound both in this life and the life to come under the judgment of God. Have you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ for your sins? I pronounce to you on the basis of the word of God that if you have genuinely trusted in Christ, your sins are forgiven. You are loose both in this life and in the life to come. It's not the ordinance of man, but the ordinance of God. And so also with anything else, that the word of God would say. And so let me give this also further application. That where spiritual authority has been committed unto the church of Jesus Christ, you must submit to it. You must submit to it. Listen to what the Belgic Confession, Article 38 says. We believe since this holy congregation is an assembly of those who are saved, And that out of it there is no salvation, that no person of whatsoever state or condition he may be ought to withdraw himself or live in a separate state from it. But that all men are in duty bound to join and unite themselves with it, maintaining the unity of the church, submitting themselves to the doctrine and discipline thereof, bowing their necks under the yoke of Christ." And as mutual members of the same body, serving to the edification of the brethren, according to the talents God has given them. It's a fearful thing, dear brothers and sisters, if someone would say, I have no time for the church. I have no place for the church. I have no use for the spiritual ministry of the word and sacraments. Because what they are ultimately saying is they have no time for Christ himself. Can we say that we have any hope of heaven if we have no place for the church in our lives? Can we say that we desire our own salvation or those we love where we neglect the means of giving saving faith to ourselves and our families in this life? I tell you, it is not me who tells you you must be a member of a biblical church. It is not me who says you must never move where there is no biblical church. It is not me who says that you must yield yourself as a steadfast and living member of the church of Christ to the spiritual leadership of the word. It is God himself who says it. And dear friends, where we are in the Lord's will and where we have yielded ourselves unto the yoke of Christ, we may be assured that the gates of hell will never prevail over our own souls. It's a spiritual promise unto true believers, you see. Listen to what John Calvin says. We'll close with this. Against all the power of Satan, the firmness of the church will prove to be invincible because the truth of God on which the faith of the church rests will ever remain unshaken. All who are united to Christ and acknowledge him to be Christ and mediator will remain to the end, safe from all danger. And what is said of the body of of the church belongs to each and every one of its members, since they are one in Christ. Amen.